When we think about addressing food waste as an issue, we think a lot about changing the supply. How can we only produce what is necessary? But what if you could change what people want to buy? What if you would just match demand to supply? The fundamental logic of the platform is it's a push model. And that is also something that's very powerful in helping us address moments of imbalance in the supply and demand. This is Xinyi Lim, Executive Director of Sustainability and Agricultural Impact at the e-commerce giant Pinduoduo. If I take agricultural products as an example, there have been times where actually we were alerted of oversupply of certain products and we are able to actually use the recommendation feed of, of our users, which is all personalized and feature some of these products that we knew were in oversupply. So sometimes because it's an oversupply, the merchant may be willing to price it quite attractively. So then I might know, okay, I've got certain people who fit the profile of people looking for a bargain. Maybe if I show it to them, they'll convert, right? Then there will be some other people that maybe fit the bill of health enthusiasts, right? And so those would be another group of people that maybe if I showed this product in the recommendation feed, they would convert. As a more recommendation-driven model, you can actually influence buying behavior and help to balance out those supply-demand mismatches as and when they happen. If you've been listening to the podcast, you may know I usually try to not focus too much on the individual company. I prefer to talk with guests about systemic issues and solutions. In the case of Pinduoduo, it's a very interesting case study of what happens if you cut out the middleman. What if 16 million farmers get direct access to market their produce to 860 million consumers? The Nasdaq-listed company has its headquarters in Shanghai. And a Chinese friend of mine said, it's up there with Alibaba. Of course, everybody knows it. <laughs> Let's jump right in. This is Red to Grain, the audiobook style podcast where food tech meets sustainability. You're listening to season four on food waste. To support our work, please subscribe and share the episodes with your colleagues and friends. I'm your host, Marina Schmidt. So let's look at how agriculture is like in China normally. So what's the situation from a farmer's perspective normally? And how does it change when Pinduoduo comes into the equation? Sure. From a traditional farmer perspective, historically, and I mean, till today, still a lot of their purchasing, right? So when they buy inputs, if we start at the beginning, when they're just preparing to sow the seeds for the new season, most of that is happening offline. So they have their network of kind of like trusted contacts whom they would procure the supplies from. But again, because they're all very small, we really don't necessarily have a lot of bargaining power on the input front. And then when they've produced something, Typically, there's an offline network of these off-takers, wholesalers who will come by and buy up the whole load of their produce and they would just quote them a price. So again, the farmer is just a price taker. And then in the traditional offline world, so of the wholesalers, they're not the final endpoint, right? So they will then sort of do further distribution, transportation of the products. It might go to a centralized facility where there's some cleaning, there's some sorting, and then it goes on again to other wholesalers before it finally reaches the end retailer, maybe in a faraway city. And then the consumer goes and buys that product from that retailer. So if I take the example of garlic, for instance, the farmer is maybe selling just one RMB per half a kilogram of garlic at the farm gate, but the consumer might end up paying 
eight RMB for half a kilogram at retail. So the eight times markup that happened in between is all because there were incremental labor costs, transportation costs, warehousing costs as the product was moved along. But what we're realizing is that actually when you have a whole digital platform where on one hand you have 850 million consumers and on the other hand you have 16 million farmers, you don't actually need to have a lot of the in-between moving and sorting of the product. If you can just have a pretty direct signal to the farmer, hey, you know, there's this person and this person and this person in different parts of China who want your product. Everybody's got a mobile wallet. So payment is, again, very seamless. The transportation of the products, there are third-party service providers who can do that for you fairly reliably at a very competitive rate per parcel. So even if you're selling garlic, you can still make the math work. So in that kind of scenario, the garlic farmer can then take more control. They could maybe form a cooperative or they could be just selling up to one level. And then the next level is doing the marketing, right? And then for the consumer, that's obviously a no-brainer, right? Because you're paying a quarter of what you would pay at the supermarket. And for the farmers, even after you net out the cleaning or the packaging, the logistics costs, they're still making about 30% better profit right at the end of it all. So I think in this kind of model, you are actually empowering the farmer or giving them a bit more room to make the decision on how they want to price the product, how do they want to market the product, and then also opening up a feedback channel for them to hear directly from the consumers, right? They'll post feedback, they'll ask questions, they'll share things that maybe to them previously was all just lost in the distribution network. In my research, I came across a solution called Tani Hub, and it it's from mm -hmm. Indonesia and they say that in Indonesia almost 50% of fresh produce is damaged especially like during the whole handling process and they also connect the farmers directly to the consumers and because a lot of the waste is created during sorting and packaging they have their own processing centers so they have machines which clean the produce which sort it which wax it and then it's sorted into for consumer for a uh, restaurants for food producers. How are you involved in the handling of the produce? Sure. So I think the model that you describe with Tiny Hub is more of a, what we would call a first party model in that the products come from the farmer and then they go to Tiny Hub, right? It then runs the more centralized kind of cleaning, packaging, and then transportation of the products to the end consumers, uh, whether it's to B or to C. So what we have in China is actually a more decentralized system. So we run a third-party e-commerce model where everything is mostly direct from the farm to the end consumer. So in the example of apples, for instance, actually in the listing, the farmer would be the one that is kind of doing the grading and also explaining to the consumer. So you might find in one listing that there could be grade A apples, you know, what kilogram of it going at a certain price. And then there could be another SKU that he creates called the value for money apple bundle, right? So maybe those are the mm -hmm. uglier ones or whatever, but obviously the pricing is significantly different. The strength of a digital model is that you have the infinite shelf, right? So you actually have a lot more flexibility to do these kinds of differentiation in price, right? To, to signal like, okay, there's a difference in quality here. And if you want value for money, here's something for you. If you want sort of the most premium taste, here's something else for you. And so that is all being handled by the farmer. When it comes to, say, the packaging, the cleaning of the product, that is all being handled by the merchant, right? So the merchant could be cooperative of farmers, or it could be individual farmer, a larger farmer, or it could be, say, a new farmer, right? The agri-entrepreneur who is procuring from maybe a certain kind of radius and then handling that 
distribution to the end consumer. Yeah, and in China, 98% of the farmers are smallholder farmers. How does this affect the supply chain? Yeah, that is largely a result of policy, right? So you're right, the farmers in China on very small plots of land, most of them less than two hectares. I think the average is something of like half a hectare. And so that means that from the economics perspective, right, it's very challenging for a farmer to consider investing in special machinery or investing in automation or things to just upgrade the productivity of the farm. In recent years, there has been some change in policy to encourage more land transfer to make it easier for that consolidation. But by and large, the same degree of consolidation that happened maybe say in the US or the West more generally, that has not happened in China. So because of the small farm size, I think it sets into motion a few things. One is that the farmer is almost always a price taker, right? Because the incomes that they're making from the farm tends to be quite limited because of its size, the ability to invest as well as, I guess, the access or awareness of kind of the new inputs or the new methods that they can employ, those also tend to be a bit more limited. And then secondly, the individual farmer doesn't really have a lot of bargaining power when it comes to selling their produce. And there's this very high standard for how food is supposed to look like, the cosmetics of food. And that's a part of why, say, apples are put into different classes and some of them are for the end consumers, the most pretty perfect ones. And then others go to restaurants and the lowest grade may go to, in, into the process of becoming an apple pie because mm -hmm. nobody cares how the <laughs> apple pie looks inside. It's, it tastes delicious. Um, sorry for making everybody hungry. <laughs> <laughs> There is also a bit more variance in terms of the quality of the output. So that is also another area where there can be more efficiency. Or how do we actually communicate some of those differences to the consumer and then where the consumer is willing to pay for some of those differences? Yeah, interesting. Sometimes we have the situation that a farmer does not have the incentive to even harvest the perfectly good food because there's nobody who would be willing to buy it. In this case, let's say somebody is stuck with a ton of apples on their farm and they go on to Pinduoduo. They're able to sell maybe a part of it. Imperfect produce and just looking more at embracing non-perfect food has been on my mind the last couple of days. And yesterday I was in a supermarket and I saw and I, I looked at it. And it was this lonely aubergine, you know, the last one, nobody is taking it. And I'm just like, oh, my God, I, I need to adopt you and I want to adopt you. <laughs> <laughs> I had this little sentimental moment with this aubergine. I thought looking at the aisles and supermarkets, everything looks so standardized and it doesn't have any personality. And I want food with personality. I want the ugly produce or the it's not ugly it's like the personality produce <laughs> it, it has its own story right so like i was sharing earlier how sometimes the merchants they have a lot of leeway in customizing the sku's on the platform so what i've seen is i think it was apples as well as pears from a sort of part of china and a few bumps on it and the merchant brought, you know, hit by hailstorm, right? Tastes perfectly fine, but has been hit by a hailstorm. So it looks like that. It's got like all the, the little dents and bumps. And so it's a special price. But because you have the leeway, you can create such a listing. You potentially are broadcasting it to the whole country, right? right? The whole potential pool of people who are willing to accept an imperfect product for a good price in exchange. 
versus I think when you are in the offline setting, it's kind of just limited to whoever is in the radius of that supermarket or whoever is like you and in the mood or willing to adopt a lonely aubergine, right? Now you're mm-hmm. actually broadcasting it to the whole country. So his whole load of hailstorm hit apples were then offloaded to a good loving home. I have so many questions. So connected to imperfect produce, I was talking to a woman that used to work in a donut factory and she would be in charge of sorting out imperfect donuts. I would tell me that they would have these bags and bags of donuts which had little bubbles or little dents just immediately going from production like warm fresh from the oven in the bin and <laughs> I was like, I mean, donuts aren't healthy, but this is horrible waste and so unnecessary. And I'm wondering if you ever considered connecting to manufacturers instead of just farmers and also helping them sell their goods that are either about to be expired or are imperfect. Yeah, I think this is emerging as a little bit of a trend. So it's not necessarily imperfect, but I think one category of goods is products near expiry. Because like in the donut example, it is quite specific. So maybe that donut factory had their own sort of requirements for how a donut has to look or how heavy it should be or whatever it may be. So those kinds of processes, when it happens inside a factory, we don't really have visibility into that. But for products that already passed the manufacturer's own standards, the food safety standards, etc. It's just that it's near the expiry date. We do actually see a fair number of merchants listing those products. So they would obviously they're, they're obliged to just state upfront, right? Expires June 2022 or whatever it is. And it's clearly listed and explained why it is going at that price. But I think the government's also looking somewhat more favorably towards that, right? Trying to manage and allow people who want to buy or willing to buy these kinds of near expiry foods, but with the requisite kind of health and safety guidelines as well, in terms of how people should be handling these products and then drawing the line in terms of if you bought something that was near expiry and then you held on to it well past that, you ate it, if you had any issues on the liability front, how should that be addressed? So there always will be some of these surrounding regulatory things that need to be thought about. But to my previous point, whether it's fresh produce or manufactured goods, because you have a lot more flexibility, you can actually signal to the consumer. And the consumer sometimes searches. They search for near expiry on the platform to find these types of products. And if that's something that the consumer is actively looking for, then it's still a win for us, right? Because we're better servicing that need than they would have been serviced elsewhere, maybe Mm -hmm. offline channels or other channels. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So for anybody listening who feels like they are lacking a startup idea, I do still believe that the connection between manufacturers and their imperfect side products and the direct consumer would be interesting. If you want to get started in that business, just send me a message on LinkedIn. You can find me at Marina. Schmidt, Schmidt with DT, or just look for red to green and you'll find my profile. I have a red and green profile picture. I'm happy to help in any way. I think this is very important. Or anybody working on a food startup. Let's say somebody is stuck with a ton of apples on their farm and they go on to Pinduoduo. I'm wondering how does the actual process look like? Do they have to package it themselves? Do they have to like package a kilo of apples <laughs> and then send it off at the post? So on the selling process, setting up a store in Pinduoduo is fairly straightforward. It's just like if you open up a shop of your own on Amazon, right? You would basically create your own product listing. And so it's up to the farmer to decide like, okay, the minimum quantity that I want to sell it in is maybe a kilogram, right? Or two kilograms. 
and then they would set the price. And what's unique about Pinduoduo is we were a pioneer in coming up with this idea of a team purchase. So as a startup in 2015, with very little marketing spend, a small user base, how we actually grew so quickly was because we were able to just tap into team purchase as a way to expand the user base. So how that works is say, if I'm looking on the app and I see a listing for apples and I might decide like, oh, okay, I'm keen to buy some apples. If I buy it by myself, the price might be, for instance, 30 RMB, right, for that kilogram of apples. But if I buy it as part of a team purchase, maybe it's only 20 RMB for that kilogram of apples. And so I might send a message to my friends on WeChat, you know, any other social platform of my choice at like QQ. I might say like, hey, Marina, I know you're in interested in buying some snacks for your family as well, right? Do you want apples? And maybe you were in the market for potato chips or something else, right? Bananas. But because you saw that link and it's a friend, right, is sending it through, you might feel that, oh, okay, I'll take a look. And actually the price is really good. And you might then decide to shift your demand for bananas or potato chips into apples. And in that case, both of us end up paying 20 RMB for those apples. It's shipped directly to your door, so there's no inconvenience to you. I receive it, my parcel at my place. But what it does is that now the apple farmer ended up with two orders in a contained kind of time frame, right? Within 24 hours is when the team has to form. It's a team of two. So that means instead of just like one order that came from me and then the farmer's kind of uncertain, doesn't really know when the next order might come in, now it's coming in more or sort of in a cluster kind of format, right? Because once you have an order, you know that this person is also working to help you pull in another order. So that helps the farmer get a lot more visibility in a short time into the amount of the products that they can move, right? Which is very important for perishable goods. And so once they have those orders, they would contact the third-party logistics providers. So typically, if you want to buy like the boxes, the packaging materials, all that is pretty readily available, easy to procure. And there would usually be a local sort of logistics provider servicing your area, right? Like at minimum, China Post, but you usually have a few other choices. And then you would call that provider of your choice to come and pick up those parcels, right? And you want to ship out to your customers. And there's an electronic way bill that's on the parcel. And I would have an estimate of when I would expect to receive it in Shanghai. So it's a pretty integrated, seamless experience on the customer end. And I think for the farmers, for the merchants, because the existing infrastructure in China is already there, so it's also quite easy for them to get started. Okay, interesting. I mean, your revenue doesn't come that much from the transaction fee, which is actually quite low, but 80% of it comes from advertising. And I wonder how much that influences how much you focus on reducing food waste, right? Because you can imagine if you would be paid by transaction fee, maybe there would be incentive to not have any food go to waste more than if it comes from advertising. And in the latter case, it's more a responsibility of the farmer probably to decide, oh, I see my food is about to be wasted and so I spent some money on advertising to then be able to actually get rid of it. Is that how that usually works or do you have like an active strategy to mitigate food waste? Sure. So if I take a step back, Kintodo doesn't just sell agricultural products. So last year, agricultural products accounted for 16%, one six of the gross merchandise volume transacted on the platform. So some of our other top major categories would be things like apparel, household goods, these types of products. 
So typically the products that have fatter margins, these are the categories where the merchants also have a little bit more leeway to invest in advertising. And I think the rationale for us to focus or derive most of our revenues from advertising is because we feel that this is how we kind of align the incentives of the merchants together with us, right? In that we are proving our value to the platform. So just because you are trying to sell something to someone like for that privilege, Amazon or some other e-commerce platform would charge you a pretty high commission fee, right? It's almost like a toll gate kind of model. But for us, the toll fee that we charge is actually very low. It's just about like 0.3% and it's just meant to cover the payment processing costs, which is already significantly lower than anywhere else in the world. And so the rest of it then boils down to, well, if we are delivering value to you, if we're helping you bring in a lot of customers and you're seeing great sales, the merchant would then want to invest more in advertising on the platform. And just to give you a sense of the advertising on the app itself, it's a recommendation feed. So it's not like if you pay for an ad, your product is like right at the top and like it's all ads, right? It's actually all dispersed. So for products that the merchant or the farmer didn't pay for an ad, it can still appear pretty high up in the recommendation feed because of the quality of the product, because of the recommendations or the reviews that people have given for it. Interesting because it's like you're orchestrating demand and supply in both ways. Most of the time we think about matching the supply to the demand. Now this is a really interesting example of shifting the demand real time to match supply. But then you're also influencing supply because you are helping the farmers see certain trends. So in my research on Pinduoduo, I saw that if you notice, there is an uptake in people wanting to eat kale or quinoa, mm -hmm. or I'm just making examples up, or charcoal, because <laughs> they want to put charcoal into everything. I know, oh, oh, charcoal, is that even farmed? No, it's not. <laughs> That's a bad example. So you, how have you been advising farmers? If you can share that, right? What have been like trends that you saw in the Chinese food system where you pointed out to farmers, oh, you should farm more charcoal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, being in a charcoal is not so much a good example. Um, but I think you know, we have had a few instances where there was a, a tea farmers association that worked with us. It's the Anxi Tea Farmers Association in the southern part of China, where we were actually able to give them some suggestions about how to market the products to consumers. Because for tea, there's a lot of different grades of tea, right? So there's the different varieties of tea, but then within each variety, there's different grades. So there's kind of the lower grade, which would go into tea bags. There's maybe the more premium ones that maybe get made into very nice gifting kind of sets or a disc, something like that. Maybe there's some that's like even more premium, it's fermented or, or handled in a special way to bring out a certain taste. So what we're able to see from the platform was just how different profiles or different groups of consumers are interacting with this segment of tea, right? So certain people, uh, maybe they fit the profile of just uh, young people buying a little bit of tea, more interested in maybe say flavorings. And there's other kinds of consumers who are maybe uh, a bit more mid-market, right? And they are willing to buy what is more premium tea, but to them, the importance is that they're getting it at a good value. So the price point was also very important. So we we're able to give kind of these like broad parameters around the different types of user profiles or the different types of buyer profiles, such that uh, the tea association 
the farmers could actually think about their own individual strategy, right? So that's one of the efficiencies that we see with this kind of uh, what we call consumer to manufacturer model, where when we relay the information from downstream from the consumer upstream to the manufacturer, that also helps them to focus on their resources. So they're not trying to produce something for everybody. They might then decide okay, based on the market segmentation, this is really what I should be focusing on. And then they can focus right on just producing what is in demand, what is needed. So before COVID, the online penetration for agricultural products was only about single digits, like maybe four or 5%. So if you think about that, it means that the dollar value of agricultural products sold in China in one year, only about four to 5% of that was happening online compared to say for clothing, for TVs, that number is more like 30 something percent. So it's a huge difference right, relative to just the norm within China. Now, after COVID, what we saw was that people were forced to buy things online, even for fresh produce, which they are historically more used to buying daily, you know, touch and feel, go to the market, buy it. And now that habit has stuck. You know, I'm wondering, regarding sustainability, right, we need to look at these things holistically. And sometimes being better in one area means making cuts in another area. I'm wondering regarding the individual transportation. The transportation sector itself has humongous struggles in terms of sustainability. If things need to be packaged and sent individually, you obviously don't want the apples to arrive with dents in them. So I'm wondering how you would evaluate the sustainability of having this merchant to consumer direct relationship because let's say I'm a user and I want to order apples from this farmer and strawberries from this one and lettuce and potatoes from the third one then they are creating three separate packages instead of me just going to store and buying everything in a hopefully reusable bag or a, a paper bag but obviously we need to contrast that with well there's also lots of packaging trying to get something from a farm to a co-op, uh, then to a wholesaler, then to a distributor, then to a retailer, then to the actual household, if there's even an additional layer of online grocery on top. So how do you contrast the traditional model and the current model of Pinduoduo in terms of packaging sustainability? Sure. Packaging is one piece of that sustainability puzzle. Right? I think the other one is the, the broader like carbon emissions in that entire journey that the product took to get to the end consumer. So I think an advantage of kind of our model of having more aggregated demand right through the team purchase is that now actually the farmer has more visibility into how many parcels or how much of the apples or whatever product it may be that they can expect to move in a certain period of time. And that also trickles to the midstream, right, in terms of benefits or efficiency in loading the truck. Because there's also that capacity utilization question. When you think about the emissions of a truck going from point A to point B, when you're spreading it out over 100 parcels versus over 10 parcels, that makes a big difference as well. So that's something where we're trying to basically harness the amount of activity and transactions that we see on the platform Form, that sense of kind of the demand as it is forming and then working with the midstream so that they can better estimate or better plan in terms of the routes where they need to go or maybe where they should go first and have a, a bit more of that kind of forecasting or assurance that okay that means I can probably be running at 90% truckload 
when I'm making the journey from point A to point B? And what does that then do to their costs? So I think that is kind of the wider picture that we see on the individual packaging piece. To your point, it is also a lot more varied because it depends on that product, where it's coming from, and then how many kind of intermediary points did it transit. And what you're looking at is the final bag of apples or box of strawberries that you receive. But along yeah. the way, right, each time you have an additional step of handling, there's yeah. also a potential damaged goods, right, from mishandling. So then you have a certain percentage of the produce that then goes out because it was squished or not handled properly. And so that contributes to the overall food loss and waste. As we see the effects of climate change, more food will be wasted due to droughts, floods and extreme weather changes. So let's take a look at the Chinese agricultural system. So most recently in July this year, there was a study published in Nature that estimated that about 27% of food that is produced annually for human consumption in China gets lost or wasted. And about half of that is due to that post-harvest handling and storage segment that you mentioned. So this is obviously, I think, something that can be mitigated with more education as well as an infrastructure build-out. But I think it's also interesting that uh, a fair bit of that wastage is also increasingly, I think, due to extreme weather events. So whether it's the flooding that not only hit China this year, but also hit many other parts of the world, I think increasingly that would also be a big contributor to food loss and waste that we'll have to keep a lookout on. Yeah, interesting. When I looked into China's climate setup, I was surprised that depending on where you are, really north, east, southwest, it can be quite different. And there is actually, as far as I remember, lack of water especially in the north. How is China trying to deal with the extreme weather? Yeah, I think, you know, there's increasing recognition that probably it has to be a combination of training or improving kind of the farmer's awareness right, of how to use resources wisely. So water is one aspect. I think fertilizer, pesticides, these other kind of inputs historically have also been kind of over applied in China. So there's also been a series of government policies trying to encourage farmers to cut down on the use of these kinds of inputs. And increasingly, there's also more support for technologies, for instance, irrigation systems to try and get farmers to use resources more effectively. And I think the diversity in the weather setup that you just called out there We also see that having an impact in kind of the post-harvest process as well, right? When you're transporting food, in mm. some places you get by without cold chain and it's perfectly fine because it's cold enough. But in other parts of China, that really becomes a problem, right? So it's pretty unique to China in that it's such a large country. It's very diverse from one part of the country to the other. Interesting. And there's also the issue of heavy metal pollution and soil degradation due to a very intensive farming. So China overall doesn't have that much farmland percentually as many other countries. Yeah, China has like 9% of the world's arable land. So, you know, relative to the size of the population, it is actually having to feed a very large amount of people on a very tight resource base. If we look at food security, it's also connected to that because something has to be recalled because we find that it is polluted with heavy metals or a dangerous amount of antibiotics, etc. Then again, we also have food loss connected to food security. Yeah, I think food security in terms of that sufficiency is one aspect of it. But increasingly, I think in the wake of COVID, the other 
big discussion point has also been around nutritional security, right? So not only is it about just giving people kind of the basic calories, but are people getting the different types of calories that they need, right? Different types of nutrients that they should be getting into their diet. So this has been a, a huge topic, especially I think in the run up to the UN Food System Summit last month. In China, for the consumer, having sufficient food is not so much a concern as having the variety or the quality that they're looking out for. And this is something that is a reflection of just how consumer demands are always shifting and evolving. So that's something that the producers also need some help right, in adapting because whatever they were producing in the past may no longer be so much in demand or maybe they have to adapt the ways that they're producing those products. And I think one area that we're keen to explore is also to see for certain types of products, if they're produced in, say, a better fashion, maybe it's a greener type of product, a more sustainable type of product, would the consumer be willing to pay a premium for such products, which would then really give a market signal for more farmers to convert their farming practices to delivering these kinds of more premium or greener products. And what's your current estimate? Do Chinese consumers value organic and more sustainably farmed produce enough to pay more for it? I think right now the market is still quite nascent, so it does tend to be a bit more limited to people maybe in the higher tier cities. But generally, there is this consumer focus on food safety, right? on knowing that the products that they're consuming are produced in a good way. The environmental impact of it is still something that is in the midst of being quantified. Right? We've seen in Europe or in the US, there's some discussions around maybe the labeling on food products. Do you want to include some kind of indication on the environmental footprint? I think China will eventually also have this kind of discussion, although you know, it's not quite happening yet. Right now, when you want to convince the consumer to pay a premium, it does tie back to the quality attributes of the product. Like it's sweeter or it has a unique kind of taste or a unique fragrance. It is from a specific geography, a specific region in the country. So then that ties into the concept of just building agricultural brands more broadly. And once you have more and more of these domestic agricultural brands standing up, having the additional buffer of being able to charge a premium because they stand for something, that also allows them to invest back into their operations. Okay, so let's get to the ending questions. So if you would have 50 million, in what businesses would you invest in if you wouldn't be able to invest in Pinduoduo? For me, what I would look at is actually pretty similar to what Pinduoduo is actively looking at. In August, Pinduoduo announced a 10 billion agriculture initiative. That's 10 billion RMB, Chinese yuan of our profit from the second quarter, which was the first quarter that we were gap profitable. And then future quarters, if we have a profit, up to 10 billion RMB of that is going to be invested in agricultural modernization. 10 billion RMB are about 150 million US dollars, by the way. So specifically within that, different parts of the agri-tech value chain, looking at how we can bring some of the existing technologies and make it more accessible to smallholder farmers. How do you reach a large market of farmers? How do you have something that is feasible at a price point for farmers of different scopes, different sizes? So that's something that people should definitely be looking more closely into, right? Because it's not just feeding the future population, it also has an impact on the environment as well. Totally. 
Regarding food sustainability or agriculture, what is an unusual or controversial opinion that you have? Yeah, I am very new to the sector. So I've been in this role for about two years now. In past life, I was a technology investor. So I was looking at you know, internet companies like Facebook, Google, for instance, looking at media companies. My general belief is that people can change more quickly than we believe, right? Changes can happen in a shorter period of time. We've seen that, especially with COVID. Now, here we are just video conferencing and chatting like we've been doing this for like the last 20 years, right? So a lot of times things that seem very ingrained or are held to be absolute truths can actually be proven wrong or disproved in a very short period of time. That's something that we should always be mindful of. And it could be a force for good as well. So whoever said that farmers are stubborn or that they're traditional, that's not necessarily the case as well. So I believe we always have to keep testing and probing these assumptions. Totally. And how can listeners connect with you, Sunil Lim? Well, they can just go look for me on LinkedIn. So just go to LinkedIn and then my profile is just xin-yi-lim. Yes, and you'll also find the link to her LinkedIn profile in the show notes. Thank you so much for the fantastic interview. Oh, thank you. It was a fantastic time chatting. And now I feel like I need to go get some apple pie. <laughs> Let's get apple pie. <laughs> thank you for listening. When I first started Red to Green, I was amazed. Wow, this is so much work. And it's made possible by a dedicated, smart ninja team. If you enjoy our work, please take a minute to share it online, send it to friends or colleagues who would appreciate the episodes. Let's spread the message and let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green.